You could turn in your Bibles to where we just had our New Testament reading. That's the book of Colossians, chapter 3. I want to pick up where Kevin left off for us in that reading. In this uh, amazing chapter of Scripture, really amazing book in Scripture. And so we're going to pick up at verse 12 of chapter 3. That's page 984 in the Blue Bible. Verse 12, and we'll read down to the end of verse 17. We're really going to be just looking at a couple of verses and a few highlights here tonight, but uh, I trust that you will be encouraged as we look into the Lord's Word. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. O oh God, as we come to your holy, infallible, inspired, inerrant word, we would ask, O oh God, that you would illuminate our eyes, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to obey and to listen, and Lord, that you would illuminate us in a way that uh, truly would redound to your glory, that would redound to our good, and that would be good for one another and good for all men generally. And so we thank you that we can gather as your people on this, the Lord's Day. We ask that you would bless us and bless those watching at home for whatever providential reason they have uh, to be there. We would ask that you would renew and strengthen them, that you would be with the sick, and that you would help us here tonight to love you more, to appreciate all that you've done in the gospel more, and Lord, that we would serve you with our whole hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I love the Apostle Paul, as you know, and uh, he is one of the great writers of Scripture who's written so much Scripture for us in the New Testament. And one of the things I like about the Apostle Paul is that he gives me lists, and I'm a list person, so I need, I need these things as reminders where he breaks things down and fleshes things out in a way that I can look at them and understand them and then hopefully be able to not only read them but apply them into my life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he does that, and that's great, and he does that here. He gives us some lists. And another thing that the Apostle Paul does several places in his writings is that he has this put-off and put-on motif that he uses. That we're not just to put away and put off various sins, various deeds of the flesh. We are to fill our lives with putting on various other things. So that's another thing that I like about the Apostle Paul, and that is of great value if you're ever counseling someone or if you need encouragement yourself as you are walking in, this, in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation that you need, uh, you need to know what you need to put off and put away. And then how do we fill those things? How do we fill those things up with, uh, with the gospel in ways that are going to glorify 
our great God and King. And so that's what the Apostle Paul does for us. He does that in this passage. He does it all the way back in the verse that was read for us earlier, verse 5, where we are to put to death various things, fleshly things. But the Colossian church that Paul is writing to really began through Paul's ministry and then one of Paul's co-laborers, Epaphras. And Epaphras seems to be indispensable to the work uh, with the Colossian church. He's mentioned in chapter 1. He's mentioned at the end in chapter 4 in various places. Uh, This man is mentioned in very positive ways by the Apostle Paul. And he says back in chapter 1, beginning at at verse 5, he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then he goes on at the end, again in chapter 4, and he talks about Epaphras. And listen to the way that uh, you can see the pastoral heart that Epaphras had for the people in this Colossian church. Uh, Chapter 4, in verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Struggling for you in his prayers. That's a that's an interesting little statement that we have there. And so that gives us a great picture of what this person, Epaphras, was like as a pastor and minister within this church of, of Colossae. And so Paul also had the same heart. And we see that he is telling them in chapter 1, verse 25, and then in verse 28 also, he is admonishing and encouraging the church to remember not only who they are, but whose they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that the word of God would be fully known and that every church member would grow to be fully mature. That is the Apostle Paul's heart in ministry. That he wants people to go on to maturity. He wants them to be fully known and to be fully grown in their spiritual lives. And so that is the intent that we see here in the Apostle Paul. He's trying to explain to us in this particular passage how we are to live and engage in the world, our witness to the world, but also how we are to engage and live with one another in ways that please and honor our God. And that really is important for us to consider in the body how we live with one another and how we live before the world. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Though it may hate it at first. So the idea here that uh, Lloyd-Jones is bringing out is that that though they might hate this message at first, they can't deny the testimony of the Lord's people. The way that they're living and engaging with one another, the way that they're loving one another and caring for each other, that becomes a testimony to the world that they cannot deny. And we look around us in our age and we so see so many things falling apart. And when, they, when the church becomes more like the world, that's a bad testimony. 
Because the world can just walk on by in the sidewalk. We're not offering them anything they can't get anywhere else. And so the idea in evangelism that we want to be like the world to win the world is not only unbiblical, but it's very unwise. And so we want to be careful of that. We want the church, and we see that the church has advanced most in the world when it has looked most unlike the world. That's what we see pictured in the Bible. That's what we see pictured in church history, that the church has so often been countercultural in the way that it has engaged with the world, that it has taken on principles like we're going to look at here tonight. And that has become a greater witness than anything else the world can offer. So we're not talking here about legalism. We're not talking about externals. We're not talking about that we should all dress together so that people can identify us from the outside. Yes, that's a Christian. They're all wearing the same outfit or have the same badge or the same bumper sticker. That's a Christian. No, it's not about the externals. It's about the internals of our heart and what's going on there and how the Lord through His Spirit is fleshing those things out into our lives and then how we are walking before one another and before the world. And so that clothing, those are things that we need to put on. That's clothing we need to put on. And we see that in this passage. These many characteristics here, these traits that come to us from the inside that can only come to us and through us through the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. And so tonight I want simply to look at a few different points here in this passage. There is a lot in here that we've just read and there's a lot that could be said, but I just want to focus in on a few broad categories and flesh out a a couple of different uh, things that we that we see here in this list that we have provided for us and then I have one particular thought meditation really we're going to apply these things as we go through them and so at the end I just have a meditation that based on my study of this passage and looking at different things was of great encouragement to me and I hope that it would be to you as well. And so the first thing that we want to look at here in this passage is found in verse 12, and that is our position in Christ, our position in Christ as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you've been following social media this past week, you've seen the question posed, what is a woman? There's been a great controversy about that uh, online in various spheres and that's gained a lot of attention this past week and it's and it's in a good way there's been a lot of positives that have come about from this particular question and the movie around that but it's sad that the question has to be asked at all and uh, that is the spirit of the age in which we live but what is a christian what is a christian well paul goes a long ways to answering that for us here god's chosen ones holy and beloved Paul reminds us here of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are you? Well, you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? God's chosen ones before the foundation of the world, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before the foundation of the world, He knew us. God's electing grace set its sights on you. It's an amazing thing to think about. And it's not because of who you are or what you've done. No, it's in spite of who you are and all the things that you've done. The Lord has set His love upon you anyways. You were born in sin. And what you have done in sinning against Him is deserving of His wrath. 
and rightfully and just, justly so. And at one time you were far off, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. At one time you were dead in trespasses and sins, but you were quickened and made alive through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. At one time you were in bondage to sin and to Satan, but you've been delivered from that and freed from that. As Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 13, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then again in verse 22, we've been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so the next time you are wondering about God's care and love for you, Look back to a passage like this and the many others like it in our New Testament and in God's Word that can encourage you to remind you of who you are because sometimes in this world we can lose sight of who we are. And it's a passage like this that reminds us that we are God's chosen ones. But not only that, we are holy. We are holy. And that means that we are set apart. And we read that in verse 22 of chapter 1, holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. What an amazing statement that is, that we are holy. We are declared holy by God, set apart to God and for God, and set apart from the world. We are different. We are dedicated to God. We've been bought with a price, and therefore we are to glorify God in our bodies. We've been redeemed by the Lord. Now yesterday, uh, we had the wedding of Jonas and Eva, And often what we refer to that as is that they've been joined together in holy matrimony. They've been set apart to one another. They've been bound together with one another exclusively. As long as they both shall live, they are bound together, taking vows to be faithful to one another, joining together in the covenant of marriage. And we as God's people are His covenant people. God is joined together with us as His covenant people. We are joined together with him and we are to be faithful to him, remembering who we are, that we are chosen, that we are holy, that we are set apart. And it's even better than marriage because it goes on for all of eternity. That marriage relationship will end with the death of one of those individuals. And yet our union with Christ as God's covenant people will carry on through all of eternity. And then Paul says that we are beloved. That is, we are greatly loved, greatly loved, dearly loved, objects of his love. And I know for some of us here, how deep the Father's love for us is a favorite hymn of yours. And rightfully so, because it reminds us of God's love for us. And so we must remember our position in Christ, who we are. We are chosen, we are holy, we are are beloved. And then secondly, as a result of this position, our union with Christ as a result of that. Secondly, we see our practice in Christ. And we see that begin to be fleshed out in verse 12. Put on then. So this is, again, this is the put on motif that Paul uses back in in verse 5. Put to death. He gives us things we need to put to death. And now here he tells us things that we need to put on. Put on. What are we to put on? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That is the clothing that we ought to wear. That is the practice that we should be engaged in. Wearing this clothing as we walk before one another in Christ's church. 
Now, there's a number of things that we read in verse 11 that the the church at Colossae could have divided over. They could have divided over being Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, nationality, cultures, uh, money. Some people had much, some people had little. All these different things that could have been divisive in that particular congregation. And when we look around our particular congregation, we see various nationalities, we see various demographics of age, we see various income income brackets in different people, but we gather together in union under the bond of Christ. There is peace here because we all know the Prince of Peace, and he gives us peace as a congregation, as his people, and that is a wonderful blessing that we receive of the Lord. What Paul is reminding them of is that Christ takes and obliterates all of the walls of division. That we are the redeemed of the Lord. We come under His banner and under that union of Christ that we all share in. If you are a believer here tonight, that you are a part of the covenant people of God. And so we gather together and we can put these things into practice because of what Christ has done in our hearts. That we don't need these walls of separation between us because we are united in Christ. We are united to Christ. We are united in Christ as the Lord's people. And so our community with one another is based on Christ. And when we remember that and live that way, it becomes also a witness to the world that people can live in peace. And so that is why we want to protect the peace and the purity of the church, because it is a witness. It's a witness to one another, and it's a witness to the world around us. So we live in relation to each other, viewing one another the way that the Bible tells us that we ought to view one another, as the redeemed of the Lord, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that lens of a family relationship together, a brother and sister, Paul lists what the posture of our hearts should be like, what the disposition of our hearts toward one another should be like. And the first thing that he tells us to put on, to clothe ourselves in, is compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. And we often want mercy and compassion for ourselves, but sometimes we're unwilling to extend that to other people. And I think one of the easy examples for me in my life is traffic. Traffic. I can justify speeding when I'm late for an appointment, late coming in on Highway 1 for church, and you're perhaps in and out of traffic, and you're kind of going along at a clip. Maybe you shouldn't be. But then on the way home that night... Things are a little bit more casual. Traffic might be a little bit easier. I'm not as much of a rush. And I see somebody go by me, probably the way that I was driving by them earlier that afternoon. And yet, what is my thought? Well, where's a policeman when you need one, right? We want justice. We give ourselves a free pass sometimes. And yet, when we see uh, the same thing occur in someone else's heart and life, we want justice to be exacted. And so we need to be careful about that kind of a double standard. Now that's one thing in traffic to to view things that way. It's quite another thing in the Lord's church to have that kind of an attitude. We should have a compassion with one another, giving people the benefit of the doubt, thinking the best of people instead of the worst, all of these kind of things. And we are to put on and to clothe ourselves with compassionate hearts towards one another caring for one another, loving one another, praying for one another, 
all of these different things, all of the one another's that we see pictured for us in our New Testaments. And so we are to clothe ourselves this way, have a tender tenderness and affection, clothed with compassion and mercy, remembering blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. And the second thing Paul tells us here is kindness. So this is in how we view other people. Again, it's picking up on the compassion a little bit. Kindness. Kindness is closely related to this compassionate idea and it refers to the grace that is to permeate our whole person. We are to have a disposition of kindness towards one another. We're to take away harshness and rudeness towards each other and replace that with kindness. And one of the great examples we see pictured in the New Testament is, of course, the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. The Good Samaritan walking along and seeing someone in need, providing for their needs to a person who isn't going to give them anything back, who isn't going to repay them down the road. They're doing things out of kindness and extending this kindness to this person, not expecting anything in return. And I wonder if you were to evaluate your kindness tonight, where would it be at? Are you only kind to those who are kind to you? People who can do something for you. That, that's not true kindness, is it? That's more manipulation, where we're trying to get a situation, we're trying to curry favor from someone and uh, manipulate. And when we do that, when we are thought well of by others for being a kind person and yet our motives aren't, aren't good, then we've received our reward. Perhaps we've been praised by that person for our kindness and that is the reward. If we are not truly kind in a biblical way, then we receive our reward from other people and we will receive no reward in heaven for those acts of kindness. And so we need to be careful of that, that that the kindness that we extend is truly for the good of that person, not the good of ourselves, and extending out of a disposition of compassion and kindness and love. And so is kindness something that you are known for? Would other people around you say that you are a kind person? That's a question that we need to evaluate ourselves with uh, tonight as we look at these things that we are to put off and to put on. Kindness. We are to have the, the, this quickening of the Holy Spirit within us and then out of that have a true kindness and love for other people. And then Paul keeps heaping on these different things and he says humility. Humility in how we view ourselves. So kindness is how we view other people. Humility is how we're going to view ourselves. And the ancient Greeks didn't view humility as a virtue. They viewed it as a vice, as weakness. So Paul takes a word of disgrace that was used in that particular culture and then he attributes God's grace to it. God's grace at work in the lives of people that gives them this humility. So we read that Jesus was lowly in heart. We read that he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so he becomes exhibit A in humility. And we are to follow that example, examples that are laid out for us by the Apostle Paul and others, and perhaps even people that you know that are truly humble in the way that they walk before God and people. So what does humility mean? It doesn't mean thinking poorly of yourself. That's not humility. It means to think of yourself 
in light of who God is, going back to our position in Christ, who God is, we know who God is, we know who we are, and putting aside pride and arrogance and self-reliance, we look to Him, we rely on Him for our goodness, for the good of other people, and ultimately for His glory. Jesus was lowly in heart. He emptied Himself. And Martin Luther says, God made the world out of nothing, and as long as we make ourselves nothing, He can make something out of us too. I'll read that again because it is a good quote. God made the world out of nothing, and as long as we make ourselves nothing, He can make something out of us too. So Paul goes on to talk about meekness here, and we sometimes think meekness is weakness, but that's not the case. It's someone... um, The word actually means power under control. It's harnessed power. So there is power there. Uh, Again, related to the Spirit of the Lord, but it's power under control. There's self-control there, meekness. And then patience or long-suffering. And this is the ability to put up with people, to bear and forbear with people, as we'll come to in the next statement. Some of us can deal with problems of circumstance quite easily. We can deal with different things that come along. But problem people can be another story that can really stretch us and test us in our lives. And that's where we need to pray for patience. James tells us, every man ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger or wrath. And then there's two different aspects that he fleshes out here. Again, as we continue on this list here, bearing with one another. We see that in, in 13a. And this means that we, that we hold back We hold back in in something that we might want to say or want to do, and yet we hold back. We restrain ourselves. We bear. And God's patience forbears with us, doesn't it? There's many times in which uh, we could provoke the Lord in His anger, and yet the Lord forbears with us, and He's patient with us. And then forgiving each other. In 13b here we see um, He devotes the rest of the verse Uh, to that particular part. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so we see the implication of the gospel that the Lord has extended forgiveness to us. We should be willing to extend that to other people. And that can be a great challenge to us. It can be easy when we don't have someone to forgive. But when we do, it's a great challenge. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have someone to forgive. It's a challenge. It can be challenging. Putting forgiveness into practice can be very, very difficult. And then if that were not all, the Apostle Paul leaves the most important part of this to verse 14. And above all those, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love, loving God, loving people for the glory of God. And so, You may have heard it said before that all of these characteristics are clothing, but love is the belt that binds everything together. Everything together in perfect harmony. Love has to be the motivation. Love for God and love for people. So we must remember our position in Christ, who we are. We are chosen, holy, and beloved. And we must remember our practice in Christ, how we relate to the body, the bride of Christ, with compassion, humility, love, and kindness. And it is this last word there, kindness, that I want to kind of key in on here. Again, not necessarily as a point of application, 
but a point of encouragement uh, in gleaning this particular passage. One of the great examples that we have in the scriptures of kindness is found in 2 Samuel 9. You can turn there if you want to, if you want to just hear me read, that, that's totally fine as well. 2 Samuel 9, that's where it talks about uh, David's relationship with Mephibosheth. And David wanted to do Saul's household good. Think about that for a second. David wanted to do Saul's household good. Now, why should that be surprising to us? Well, for the simple reason uh, that Saul didn't want to do David any good, did he? He wanted to kill David. He set out to, to murder him and to hunt him down. And so, you would think in the mind of Mephibosheth that when he was summoned to appear before the king, he would be terrified that he was going to lose his life. He didn't know why David was bringing him. He didn't know why that, that these men came and searched for him and found him and brought him to the king. And so he would have gone forth terrified to be summoned by the king. Knowing the family relationships and history, history uh, Jonathan's relationship aside. And so we see this taking place here in 2 Samuel 9 and we'll pick up in verse 3. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? It's an amazing statement. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Then king David sent and brought him. In verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Amazing kindness that David shows in this passage here. What grace, what compassion. And David, as a type of Christ, shows us a wonderful picture of the kindness of the gospel. Because we are Mephibosheth. We'll just work with me here for a second as we flesh these things out a little bit. Mephibosheth was crippled of little worth to anyone in society. And we are crippled by sin. Not only crippled by sin, but dead in trespasses and sins. David pursued Mephibosheth and showed him grace and kindness. The Lord has pursued us and showed us great love, grace, and kindness. Set his love upon us, lavishly loved us. Mephibosheth was brought before King David. One day you and I will be brought before the Lord. We will stand before the Lord on that great day. We will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Mephibosheth fell at his feet and paid homage. On that great day, will we not bow before our great God and King, bow at his feet and worship him? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Mephibosheth was fearful But on that day of judgment, 
For the child of God, there is no cause for fear. And I love Shorter Catechism, question number 38. It is one of my favorites in all of the Catechism. I've shared this with you before, but I, I just love it. And if you have a heart like mine that is, that is desperately wicked, then you will appreciate this as well. Question 38 of the Shorter Catechism. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Answer, at the resurrection, believers being raised up to glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Now, I don't know what that does to your heart, but to mine, knowing my heart the way I do, that's amazing. So David declared, do not fear, for I will show you kindness and you shall eat at my table always. Where are we going to eat after the day of judgment? We will feast with Christ himself at his banquet table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will know the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Why? Ephesians 1 verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All of eternity it will take to unpack that. In the coming ages he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's all of grace. It's all God's kindness. It's all a wonder. And the words of Mephibosheth, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Let's pray. Oh God, your grace and your gospel are truly amazing. And Lord, we are unworthy. And so we thank you for all that you've done and provided for us in the gospel. Pray and ask that you would quicken us and aliven us to be able to extend love and compassion and care and concern, to have true humility and kindness before our brothers and sisters. And this would be a great testimony before the world. Lord, we pray that you would make it so. We pray that you would give us a tenderness. We pray that you would give us great grace and help. All that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.